Welcome to the Sendcast. My name is Dale Pickles. I'm from a company called B Squared, and I am the host of the Sendcast, the podcast for special educational needs. Each week, we'll be talking about a different topic within the world of special educational needs to improve our knowledge, to provide support to professionals working in schools, and to empower parents. On this week's podcast, we're going to be discussing understanding and managing anxiety in children and young people. My guest this week is Dr. Tina Ray. Tina is a consultant psychologist with over 30 years experience working with children, adults and families. As well as this podcast, Beesquared also run the Virtual Send Conference and Parent Talks. The Virtual Send Conference is a conference for schools that runs twice a year. It is a virtual conference so the conference comes to you over the internet. We record every session and this means you can watch the videos whenever you need to. You can also purchase access to future or past events. For more information, visit www.virtualsendconference.com. At the end of this episode, I'll be giving you a discount code so you can save some money when you purchase access. And if you're a parent, please visit the same website where you will find Parent Talks. Now on with the podcast. In this week's podcast, we're discussing anxiety and learning about how we can help to manage anxiety. Discussing this with me is Dr. Tina Ray, a consultant psychologist. Tina has supported children, adults and families for over 30 years. She's currently working as a consultant educational and child psychologist in a range of SEBD, SEMH and mainstream contexts, including compass fostering, supporting foster carers, social workers and looked after children was one big mouthful. She has held many positions in many places, including a trustee of the Nurture Group Network and is a member of the editorial board for the journal Emotional and Behavioral Difficulties and for the International Journal of Nurture Education. I won't mention that she's also written over 100 publications, but I will share some of these in the show notes at the end. Welcome to the show, Tina. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. You're welcome. So anxiety. Anxiety disorders are the most common mental health disorder in young people and adults. Yet there's limited support, limited knowledge and limited training that is available. And it's really important that parents, schools and other organisations have a better understanding of what anxiety is so that they can recognise it and support the children and young people with anxiety. So let's start simply. What does anxiety look like? From my perspective, children and young people who are anxious, who've got anxiety disorders, display a range of different behaviours. And very often it's misconstrued because Anxiety is basically fear. It's fear of something, a situation, an event, another person. And what that sometimes looks like to to us as adults, it can display itself as anger, frustration. Some people say, you know, bad behaviour because this child is being quite aggressive. They don't tend to remember things. They they, they look as though they're not responding well to instruction, that they're, they're just actually being defiant. And I think it's really, really difficult to sometimes unpick it. But we need to be clear that that level of fear and that hypervigilance that you experience when you're anxious very often looks as though you're just being downright rude to your teachers, to your parents. And this is the problem for lots of adults, is that they misconstrue it, they misinterpret it. So they then punish it. So what they're doing is punishing a child for just feeling really scared and frightened and anxious. And anxiety can be really, really debilitating. So it can be about social things, so being in a social context, having a fear of what other people think of you. But it could also be, you know, for example, lots of kids at the moment experiencing anxiety around going into school 
due, due to this COVID pandemic. It might display itself in eating problems, sleeping disorders, and also in terms of working memory. If you're anxious, your working memory is compromised. So when someone's saying to you, please go into the class, sit down, do this, this and this, you probably remember just the last thing that they asked you to do because you don't process it. You're just not capable of doing it because you're in that kind of flight mode. So in essence, there are lots of different ways in which you see anxiety. Another common one from my perspective, and I see this a lot, particularly in teenagers, is when you can see somebody really just being so overly negative and then just seemingly going right off the handle without any apparent reason. They just lose it. So their behaviours become quite extreme. So it's, it's really quite complicated, but it's a range of things. I think the most important message is that anxiety should not be punished because it's lo it looks as if it's bad behaviour or aggressive behaviour or defiant behaviour. So, and it can display itself in that way, sadly. I mean, I, I would say one of the ways in which a young person described it to me, and this is a long time ago in a session one-to-one, -one, and I, I said to her, can you explain what anxiety means to you? What does that feel like for you? And she said, if I drew it out, Tina, it would be like a brick wall right in front of me that I can't get over, I can't get round it, it's just there in my face and it makes me feel ill, it makes me feel so down and I feel powerless, I just can't get through it. So I asked her, well, what would that look like then if the anxiety was just that little bit manageable, if you thought you could just begin to manage it more effectively? And she said it would actually look like a staircase and she actually drew the bricks out as a staircase. So I think there is something about this that, you know, it is something that is huge to the individual. And what our job has to be is to help that child to, to break it down. I think you've got to start very, very small and it's step by step by step. Yeah. When my eldest daughter started secondary school, she had quite, she was a little bit anxious, but it really hit her in that first year. And the school were really good. They gave her a sort of a card system. She could show a card and leave the class. And I think she got really worked up about science and having to dissect something which meant she was always on edge in science type thing. She was dreading it. It would start affecting the previous lesson because she knew she had science next. So she said things like that, but she was scared of the word. She wouldn't say it. She didn't even like me saying it. So that was the first challenge. It's like, you kind of got to accept yeah. you are feeling anxious. You've got to actually get to the point you can talk to me about it. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And that way we can just start discussing why you're feeling anxious and just saying the word anxious. She'd be going, oh. Because she didn't like that she felt that way. So yeah. there was a lot of conversations we had discussing it and and working it out. And it, it's one of the things that you can sit there and go, oh, it's just, it's just this, get on with it. And that doesn't help. But it's also, I think, as a parent, as I look back, I, I sit there and see that when you say something, they react, as you said, sometimes quite angrily, or it might appear angry or yes, yeah. fear or things like that. And you're very then quick to respond. And sometimes it is being able to take that second to just go, mm. why did she put it like that? Why did she say, why, why has she just responded to me like that? Not jump straight down their throats and go, don't you, you sit there and just go, okay. Yeah. And then yeah. change that, how you deal with it. I think there's something about mirroring your child because like parents, you don't want them to feel that way. And it makes you anxious. You, you actually absorb it from them. Yes. You know, and, 
I, th I suppose part of our anxiety is the adult is that I want to be there and protect them and make sure that they don't feel like that. And I'm getting anxious because they're getting anxious. So there's this transference going on and you want to jump in and save them from it. You know, yes. it's just a natural human instinct. If you love somebody, you don't want them to experience that. And I think it's about us as well. I would say I take a step back and I take a deep breath and I think, right, just don't actually mirror this response that I'm getting and understand it for what it is and don't whatever we do I think there's something about don't actually dismiss it you said you know you don't want to you're tempted to and that again it's a natural human instinct but this is I mean it's like we call it emotion coaching so we're thinking about the work of Gottman here but you know you don't actually dismiss the feelings you recognize them you help the child label it, which is hard if they don't want to use that word. But then you actually talk to them about how does that feel in your body? You know, and I can recognise that that's quite normal. And I think there is something about normalising it because a lot of kids won't want to talk about it because they think, oh, I don't want to have this mental health problem. I don't want to give that. I don't want to have that label on me. Yeah. Whereas actually the moment we start to talk about it, there's this sense of catharsis, isn't there? You know, you can you can see someone think, oh, right. OK, it's OK. Lots of people get this. And then it's about, well, what can we do about it? Let's let's start problem solving, I suppose. And I think it is that that being, knowing that other people are anxious as well is probably a big thing because they might be feeling, why is everyone else finding this so easy? Mm. Well, I'm not. And, oh, you don't understand because you, you're not anxious. I'm the only person who's anxious. There's a whole load of that. And you can sit there and go, actually, I hated this. And, and sometimes it's useful. It was useful for my children to hear when I've been anxious, mm. things that make me anxious and and let them know that, yeah, is and it's sometimes it's saying to them, and um, I'm very logical. I love logic. So when my wife will get anxious about going on a plane, I'll start quoting how many flights a day, how many this, the safety record, and all this lot. And she it sits there, and you look at her, and she's just going, I don't care. I don't care. I, I just want to know the plane won't crash. I'm like, I've given you all the numbers, but it's a feeling thing. It's And the logic isn't always there. It's She's anxious about something. She can't always put her finger on it. It's given this feeling. And that was quite interesting. She, she's finally real, sort of realized that her flying, she used to fly to New Zealand. She worked in New Zealand, so she'd fly back and forth. It's since she became a mum. Yeah. So something happens to me, what's going to happen to the kids? That was her fear. It yeah. wasn't really the flying. Mm -hmm. It was if something happens to me, what happens to the kids? Mm -hmm. That was the anxiety. So it's sometimes when someone is being anxious, it might not necessarily be with what, happened that day or what you're actually thinking they're anxious about going to school it might not be nothing about school it could be something at home it could be something that happened it could be lots of random things it's, it's unpicking that and working out why that anxiety is there yeah and you can only do that if you communicate and yes. you know i think you've got to actually be really open and talk and take the time to talk and be authentic with your kids you know because otherwise it's just not going to happen and I think that's the barrier and I think they need us there to be like the safety net for them they need to feel that they've got a safe base and if they don't experience that that's when that the anxiety increases even more you know but it is that it's that talking about it initially you've got to actually talk it through and problem solve it and not feel not be made to feel in any sense that it's your problem it's you're the only one that experiences this there must be something yeah. really bad about you really wrong with you you know and a lot of kids do actually say that to me they say oh I just thought it was me I didn't think anyone else felt like this I just thought I was the mad one you know and they literally use that kind of language very often 
Because logic says, like, if my daughter wouldn't do something, and I'm like, everyone else tries to do it, why can't you do it? Because that's how I'm logically looking at it, going, just get on with it. Surely you could see this. But then, obviously, there's something my daughter is seeing or feeling mm. that perhaps the others didn't, or perhaps someone's told her a story about something, or perhaps there's just something that I'm not understanding. So yeah. what I've got to do is turn that. Well, if everyone else has coped with it, fine, but she's not. It's not that there's something wrong. It's sort of like, Okay, so what experience have you had? Because anxiety, I think I talked about this with someone else. And it might have been Sarah Jane Critchley. I can't quite remember. But anxiety isn't something that just happens on its own. It's kind of fed from something else. Yeah, absolutely. And, and sometimes you will find that, that a kid could have had a really bad bullying experience three, four years ago. They never talked about it properly. They never got the kind of level of support they needed at that time. And they're holding on to that fear. It's buried in there. And they, they've never felt safe to explore that because they've never had an adult who would actually let them talk about it in the way that they needed to, you know. And yeah. I think there's something, that kind of authentic, nurturing, um, almost therapeutic type relationship, you know, you've got to actually provide that for children so that they feel safe to, and, and they know that it's okay to talk about those bad things those really bad horrible emotions that really overwhelm them at the time and burying them has just kind of it's done no good really because it's just kind of made it exacerbated it so those little things that happen will trigger that and it's not necessarily about dissecting it could be about something that happened quite a while ago but that, yeah. that take again takes time you know and I think there's something about really challenging kids in the nicest way and I think part of this is and it's CBT link, so like cognitive behaviour strategy. So you've got this negative automatic pattern of thinking, feeling, behaving. So you've got this thought that's, you know, I'm really worried about this. This is horrible. The bad thing's going to happen. And then you get in the situation and, of course, you start getting that horrible feeling physiologically in your body. Your heart's racing. You feel a bit sweaty. You know, you really are kind of getting agitated. So what do you do? You kind of try and get out of the situation or well, you don't take the maths test. And then what do you do? You don't take the maths test because you're anxious about it. And then what does that do? That gives you more evidence to show because you fail it, that you, your thought was right in the first place. And I think there's something about intercepting that initial thinking and trying to gently challenge the child to help them to reframe it. And sometimes what I do is I'll write down on one side of a piece of paper all the reasons they think that, what their evidence is, and then on the other side, all the evidence against it. There's not much of that normally because they've had, had that thought for a long time. But it's not about being able to quickly change a negative to a positive. It's actually about being able to say, this isn't helpful to you. This is ineffective thinking. Let's try and reframe it into something more effective. So you can't say suddenly, you know, I'm rubbish at maths, I'm going to fail the test. You can't say, oh, I'm brilliant at maths because I'm clearly not. That's not authentic. But you can say, I find maths difficult. It's hard work for me. So when I get in the maths test, I'm going to sit there. I'm going to do my deep breathing and take my deep breaths. I'm going to actually read through the questions three times, not once. And then I'm going to take some more deep breaths. I'm going to ground my feet in and I'm going to pick the ones, the questions. I think I could just do the first bit and then I'm going to start that. You know, so it's it's kind of giving them really practical strategies. But you only get there if you begin to really find out what they're thinking, why they're thinking like that, and then begin to kind of challenge it in a, in a gentle way, really. That makes I sense. Think, I think the parents are probably the best at doing that because – when they've got that negative, what you've actually got to do is, as you said, you've got the evidence for why I shouldn't do it, evidence for why, is you've got to find some 
things which are similar where they did do it and it was positive. So my, my daughter's a bit of a scaredy cat. Yeah, if I say we're going to do something new, her immediate is, no, I'm not doing it. That's her immediate response. Mm-hmm. And sometimes having the conversation miles beforehand, she'll be in one of those moods where she's going, I'm going to go do it. Mm-hmm. And she gets there on her own. Other times she's, I'm not doing it, I'm not doing it. I should just say, I don't want you to say that. I want you to get there and look at it before you say no. That's all I want you to do. If you just get there and see it, or you watch someone else do it, and then you're going, yeah, I'm not doing that. That's fine. But saying no, kind of without seeing it, that's not really, as you say, it's not helping you. You've made a whole list of this is going to happen, this is going to happen, this is going to happen, it's going to be like this. Blah, blah. You kind of want to go have a look at it and kind mm-hmm. of see and then go, okay. So, and again, it's sometimes seeing someone else doing it and watching them come out and go, okay, so that they were all right. They're younger than me and they did it. And sometimes that's quite good for my daughter, seeing someone younger than them, being able to do it and enjoying it. It's like, okay, so it's not going to be that scary. Mm. And then my daughter does lots of stuff, which is really like the whole um, go ape type stuff. And she'll do it. But she has this whole internal battle with herself yeah. beforehand. And sometimes I enjoy it. Actually, I'm never doing that again because the anxiety starts coming back again. She starts worrying about, well, it was all right that time. And it is, it's really interesting for someone like me who literally will just do a pros and cons, look at evidence, and that's my decision based on pure logic the emotion generally isn't there until i'm right in the middle of it and i'm going oh this is quite scary to my daughter who thinks very much emotionally and i'm having to learn a whole new language of having those conversations so i'm used to having conversations where i'll give you the pros or cons we'll weigh it up in a sensible conversation and we'll both come to the same conclusion and i'm discussing something with someone but i'm weighing it all pros and cons and we come to a completely different conclusion there's a load of other stuff in her head but you, you said something about being logical, didn't you? You yeah, said I'm a very logical not. person. Everything you've said there is about I do this in a logical way. I think pros and cons. I work it out. I measure the risk, blah, blah, blah. So you've done that. And I think there's another element to this that a lot of people, we don't get it very often. I think you've got to say to yourself, actually, some of us have just got that little gene and it is about personality as well. And lots of psychologists don't want to talk about this because they kind of say, oh, no, nature nurture debate, it's too tricky. But actually, some kids just are more anxious. You know, and I talk to lots of parents yeah. who say, I don't know why my son's like that and my daughter's like this. They've had the same upbringing, you know, we've done the same things, they've had the same opportunities, same parenting. But actually... She's always so worried about everything. She's just, and I, I have to say to people, do you know what? Some kids are just naturally little worry bunnies. They are. That's what they do. And, and what you've yeah. got to do is actually go with that because you've got to help them navigate it. They might be like that for the rest of their lives. You know, there's no magic wand here. You can't change sometimes what we call someone's personality. You can help them to change how they respond to things. I'm going to go down that whole middle child type thing, but generally the anxious person can often be the eldest. The eldest is always doing things. They're the first child to do it. So for them, there could be a lot of anxiety because they've not watched someone else go to secondary school. They're the first child to start school. They're leaving everyone else behind. So for them, there's literally, it's, it's lots of things to be anxious about. The middle child can sit there and go, okay, they've my, my big sister, my big brother's done this. Cool. Nothing to worry about. They've done it before. They seem happy. I've already experienced some of it because I've been to school. I've done so. I'm quite happy with this. And the youngest child, and I'm one of those, can feel anxious that well, everyone else has done this all right. Mm. What happens if I don't? Yeah. What happens if I'm not? And then sometimes the parents, because it's their youngest, 
can be a bit more mothering and they're very, a bit more, they're, they're my baby. And yeah. even though I'm over 40 now, I'm still my mum's little baby. And it is, although you think we've done the same, just those little different things you do have huge implications. Yeah. And there's things like, so you could be the youngest child and where your children, your big brothers and sisters are going to school and enjoying it, you might be saying that my brothers and sisters are leaving me. Mm-hmm. And then therefore you might be slightly anxious at school. And there's loads of things that you really, unless you're living their life, you don't see how they are comprehending and understanding that world and how they're, they're taking things from various things that you will not have a clue on. Mm-hmm. And it's just as we have had conversations with my daughters, I've just, it's just been amazing what they take away from situations that you may not yourself because you're just you're a different person i think that's something about parents actually you know you've got to understand they're not me they're not a little mini me and there are so many different factors at play and what makes them who they are you know in all those different contexts that they find themselves and some of the anxiety might be because they're the youngest that might be because they've got fears that you know, they're not going to live up to expectations, fear of failure in terms of my, my older sister or my brother's really good at this. I, I don't want to try it. So they haven't got that kind of growth mindset yet, which we need to teach them, obviously. But I think it's so complicated that we've got to actually say we need to treat children on an individual level. So what yeah. we're doing with them has to meet their needs. It should be we make them the centre of what we're doing in order to support them in their anxiety. And that doesn't mean giving them their own way all the time which some people talk about child-centred or they don't like that kind of phrase. But I I really mean child-centred. I mean, making the child the centre of what we do to make them able to cope more effectively. Yeah. You know, giving them independence, really. I never say the phrase, well, your sister can do it or your brother can do it. What you actually, you can turn that and say, okay, your sister's done this. They they seem to enjoy it. So you're not saying, because they can do it, you can do it. You're Mm -hmm. saying... Well, they've done it and how did they feel? And maybe not just say, well, they can do it. You can just get on with it. It's, it's it maybe going, okay, well, how did your sister feel? You saw your sister. Your sister, did they enjoy it? Well, they enjoyed it. So, okay, mm-hmm. so that means it's not a horrible thing. And it is. It's something about them. They see that event or that situation differently to their sibling and to you. Mm-hmm. And especially with COVID, lots of uh, older people have been talking about Oh, if this happened when I was young, I would have had three TV channels. I wouldn't be able to watch TV when I want. There was no internet. They don't know how lucky they are. And it's like that phrase is it. They do not know how lucky they are because they never were in a world where they only had three TV channels. They were never in a world this. So to them, they're scraping through with just having 500 channels and the internet and all the social media. So they can't put into context of where we were and where we've got to. So you're saying this is great. They're going, well, no, it's great because we've had the previous experience and now we've got this experience. But they haven't got those sort of experiences to build on. So they'll be seeing the modern world in a very different way to us. Mm. And also I think we've, you know, just picking up on the COVID thing that, you know, they, they may have access to all of this online stuff. But actually there's a danger in that as well because, you know, being overloaded with social media, with what's going on out there, having these constant messages about the pandemic, the impact on schools, learning, all the bad things. I think actually that obviously is increasing anxiety as well. And we know it when the um, young minds did their research right at the start of the pandemic in March, 
what they actually found was, when they, I think it was a thousand kids that they interviewed, they found that all the ones who'd got pre-existing mental health conditions like anxiety disorder, depression, self-harming, all said it was exacerbated by that because they were isolated. They didn't have the same support network in terms of actually meeting and being with friends physically. And so that's interesting to me. It wasn't so much the social media stuff and their access to all of that. It was just actually being with their friends and having that liberty, that freedom taken away from them to actually sit next to their pal and have a chat. And what I think sometimes we forget as adults is the level at which actually they do communicate with each other. They do provide that safety net and support. They do share their fears and worries. Not all of them, but many of our kids do. And I think sometimes, you know, it's just too easy to say, oh, why would they be so worried? Why would they get so anxious? I absolutely get why they are. And I think that I would be just as anxious as they are if I was a kid today, having the same sort of access to social media and all the kind of news networks and everything that's out there, you know. But it's, it's a tricky, very, very tricky time for them indeed, I think. I think with the, the whole relationship, there's all those little nuances. There's physical contact. There is body language. And all of that is missed out on online. Yeah. But it is, is, as you get older, you get more confident in yourself that, you get to the point where you're going, look, I'm me. If you don't like me, go away. If you like me, great. But if not, I'm not interested. You get to that, you, you get confident. Most people get to that sort of world where they find the people who are like them. They create their bubble of like-minded people. Mm-hmm. And they're quite confident because they've got friends. They've had friends for 10, 15 years. So life's all right. When you're a teenager in secondary school, you haven't got all of that to draw on. So you're constantly, I think, looking for those reassurances. Mm-hmm. And yeah, that's all got taken away from them. So they didn't have those getting to school and seeing someone across the playground just smile because they're there. Yeah. All of those little reassuring things that help build their confidence this time, lots of little bits like that have been taken away. Yeah. Unprompted, they see me, they smiled. It's like, well, if I phone them and they smile, of course they know I'm calling. But it's those little bits that you will pick up will make things. And I also think going to the news, which you touched on, is it's their access to the news will fuel their anxiety also how much their parents are paying attention to the news how their parents are responding is a very big furnace to fuel that anxiety and then you have maybe how the covid has impacted the family in terms of employment yeah fuel the parents anxiety and make them change and it is a huge pot and and i think there are people as you mentioned, those 1,000 children with the, all that previously diagnosed, it's made it worse. But then we're going to have a whole load of other children who life was okay, life was all right. They maybe had a little bit of anxiety. Mm. All the stuff that's been known thrown at them, it has com- it is just thrown that through the roof. And I think for some of them, it's going to be really hard to identify who they are. I think it's going to take some time for it to bubble up and, and come out. I mean, lots of people were saying when I, I've got lots of teacher friends, obviously, and they were saying when the kids first came back, most of them just looked so pleased to be there. They were over the moon. They were a bit worried about the work and thinking about catching up, which I don't like that narrative, but never mind. But I, I really did feel, you know, you needed to wait. And I kept saying, well, just give it a couple of weeks. And they're all saying to me now, yeah. We've noticed there's about five or six in that group. There's so many in that bubble. And we can see the anxiety coming out now because now they feel secure enough back in the school context to actually begin to express it and and talk about it. And I think that 
the problem now is for, for the teaching staff, for parents, you know, if I'm working with the, with the child, you know, you've got to be thinking, I need my own self-care needs met now. Because if I'm not regulated, if I haven't regulated my own nervous system and I'm not okay in myself, I'm not going to be able to model this to them a model how I'm managing my own anxiety, not dismissing it because I am anxious. You know, I'm, I'm just doing all the hand washing, all the other stuff that we've got to do. I'm following all the rules, but at the same time, I'm managing it and I need to be able to model that to the children, the kids I work with or look after. And I think that there's an element of, you know, where is the help for the grown-ups in this in terms of managing their anxiety, supporting each other? What What's the school doing to make sure that their teachers are okay? Because if they're not okay and they're off the wall and they're getting stressed out, then that is just going to be, again, you know, like the, you mirror the kids' stuff, they're going to mirror yours as well. You know? Yeah. And there's also there's a, there's a whole problem at my daughter's secondary school. So I think my daughter's secondary school, I think she might be up to six confirmed cases Yeah, in yeah. various different year groups. So immediately, as, as you have one case, then any child who sits next to those in classes, they're out of school for a couple of weeks. And then the teachers are being taken out. Yeah. So not only are you trying to support your current staff, but actually you could lose in a secondary school, you could lose half your teachers in a two-week period and yeah. then have supply teachers. And now they're supposed to be doing all the stuff and noticing the children when they've just... It is a huge recipe for disaster. And I really do think the Department for Education really need to pull their socks up Absolutely. and start removing the pressure I also, as you said, the catch-up, I hate catch-up. I hate that phrase. We do not right now know if anyone needs catching up because we <laughs> haven't done any assessment. Yep, absolutely. We haven't actually worked out where they are to work out have they regressed. Are they regressing? Because um, I'm talking to um, another podcast, is I do think some skills like maths at certain levels will not disappear because they probably do quite a lot of maths without realizing it, playing various games and working at how many Robux points they need or how many Fortnite V-Bucks. They're doing lots of maths, but other bits will disappear. So we just don't know. And until we've really, schools have worked out where their children are, then we shouldn't be talking about catch-up. And the whole idea of early years catch-up with children even haven't started school, that was completely bonkers. Absolutely. The government needs to reduce pressure. And I like, I think recently the Scottish government have announced they're not doing GCSEs this year. They're, yeah. using, they're doing teacher assessment. To me, we need something like that. So schools can sit there and plan that year out mm. and no pressures off for exams, but also say to the children, because that's the other thing is my, my, my wife is saying to my daughter is she's in year 10. He'd be like going, Right, teacher assessment is probably going to happen this year. It may happen next year. So actually don't coast and then do a load of work at the end. Actually, you've got to try and keep your grades up the entire time. Yeah, yeah. Which is another load, load of stuff to deal with and stuff. And it's it's just knowing. I think that's anxiety is often the unknown, isn't it? It's, it's, I don't know what's going to happen. Or when something like this happened before, it all went wrong. Or So we need to know. And even as a logical person, I don't like unknown. I like to have a plan. I like steps to work through. I love that. It keeps me happy. And I suppose if I don't have that, I get my, my I get better anxiety. But we need a county level, country level, a plan, guidance, so schools can go, right, so this is what your expectations of me are. This is the support I'm getting. This is the accountability checking you're going to be doing on this year, which hopefully be minimal. Mm. I can now focus on what is right for my children and my staff. But until those pressures are removed from the school, 
they are running around mm -hmm. and yes teachers need supporting and the children need supporting mm -hmm. and that is that so there's a couple of things you said there and the one is that modeling yeah <laughs> modeling is a very important thing that's as parents we can do that and as as teachers they are they're going to have to do it well no you always model it's not always positive modeling you yes. are sometimes modeling that i'm really not coping and this is how i look when i'm not coping this is i'm not coping you so there's a whole load of that going so it somehow teachers need to be modeling the right stuff and that they're happy and they're coping even if they're not and that's hard that's really hard I think it's an ongoing anxiety having to do that. And I think yeah. our, our um, you know, our powers that be have a, a great deal to answer for in terms of the lack of planning so far. Anxiety is increased when you don't feel in control. Or you, you said it, it's a direct link. People who are anxious are those that don't feel in control of themselves or their situation. And we're not going to feel totally in control of the situation because it's a pandemic. What we can be in control of is what we do with our kids in school. The, the element of catch-up should be now emotional. It should be looking after kids' well-being, making sure that they're regulated. They're not going to learn if they're overwhelmed with anxiety. That It just goes out of the window. You don't retain information. You don't absorb information. So I think, you know, we're going to follow. We should be following what Scotland have done, as we usually do, because they usually get it right in this sense. I'm afraid, Nicholas, so I shouldn't get political here. <laughs> you know, no. But I think it's, you know, it, it's really, really, it's vital. And, you know, let, let's just kind of really change the narrative. We should be talking about emotional catch-up, providing a safe emotional base for our kids, making sure that we understand the impact of trauma anxiety so that we're modelling the right things to them and we're giving them the right tools. And, and that's a big ask anyway. And that would be my focus for this next two terms not anything else in my view you know if they start doing some work hey that's wonderful you know but i'm um, you know perhaps yeah. you know, there'll be people who disagree with that but i really think you've got it so I, I think that there to me i think there's a certain comfort as you said to children coming back to school is there's a comfort in a normal yes. so for a child having that structure being set work and being set homework it's like oh, I could almost hug this they probably won't admit it but actually it's like this is what i'm like this is what i'm used to this is what my weeks look like I'm back to normal. And then when you talked about that, that heightened state is, is while you're, and if you, if you get in those arguments, when you're in an argument with someone, you're not thinking logically, you say things you don't mean, you can't logically form an argument. You just start saying silly things. And then you go, you, you, you actually, and you calm down and you calm down, you go, Oh, I should have said that. Or I should have said that. It's you're, you're starting to actually process what's going on. I think with anxiety, it's exactly the same, which is what you mentioned earlier. And I think having that stable structure in your school that that kids can predict and they know, right, today, it's Tuesday, this, this, this is going to happen. Cool. I know what's going to happen now. My anxiety is going to reduce. And then I can actually start to process, and which you said yeah. weeks in. Now they're in this routine, they're now actually able to process how they're feeling about things because they've got that routine. So to me, you want a routine, you want something that happens. There may be some adjustment on the type of work you're doing. There may be some adjustment on the amount of homework or the style of homework. But to me, I think for a lot of people, having that normality is going to really help them. Yeah. But you've then got to recognize that not all children are in that happy place, that there may be stuff they haven't processed yet and they may need to actually, they might not do their homework, not because they're being naughty, not doing it, is 
because they're not happy. They're, they're anxious. There are various other things going on. And there's, there just needs to be that level of flexibility. So it's having that structure, mm. but maybe for individual children, not following it so rigidly, maybe taking time out and working at what's, what works for them. So I think when I, when I first heard of the recovery curriculum, I kind of misunderstood it. And so it's a whole curriculum you follow and all this long going, not everyone needs that. Not everyone's going to need that. And my daughters don't seem to at the moment. But it is, to me, the recovery curriculum is continue as normal, but be open and listening. Yeah, is absolutely. what I take from it. Yeah, yeah. And, and it's a continuum. It's like anxiety itself is a continuum. We can have a little bit of it. And then some of us are going to have loads and loads of it. And we're going to need a more bespoke, differentiated approach and support system, you know, so some kids are actually going to need an intervention, a therapeutic intervention. We know that. And other kids are just going to need daily check-ins, take the emotional temperature of the class, give them some well-being lessons in general and some, you know, time to actually practice grounding, mindfulness, all of the stuff that we know works for many kids. But for other kids, they're going to need very limited amount of support because actually they've got a good secure nurturing base at home. They're naturally got levels of resilience that they're that they're using, they're building on, and they're not that you know temperamentally. They, they're just managing. Some of us are managing better than others, and we know that. But you don't demonise the kids, all the adults who are more anxious and not managing it as well. What you do is you provide the support. We've got to get into our heads this, the importance of compassion in education now we've needed it for a long time but there's a, a dearth of compassion in some areas you know I, one head teacher sent me an email two days ago which I've just managed to respond to where she talked about going to a meeting of their match their multi-academy trust and they all talked about recovery curriculum and everyone was talking about academic catch-up and she said but you know I was the only one that actually said my kids are going to the toilet more often they're getting headaches. She said they're kids who come in and they cry. They don't want to come into school. She's worked in a primary school up in, in Scotland. And she said, and actually, that's what we need to focus on. We need to focus on their well-being because I don't want them to get school phobia. I don't want them to go down that route where they're so anxious it develops into emotionally based school avoidance. So I think it's really, really important that we are strong about making the argument for this and challenge yeah. that narrative that this, the most important thing is that they can go back and do that assessment, these tools, you know, in maths or something that they can catch up in that area. I, I just think we need to be really clear and assertive, dare I say it. I, I Yeah, I'm already having conversations with schools about assessment and data, and it is starting to worry me. Oh, oh, what, what's our expectations for this year? And it's like, really? And it's it's not the teacher who's doing it. It's it's always comes from above, and it might be the mat, it might be the local authority, or it's governors or someone. It's just come on, let's think about this properly. And just to take sort of in your own life, when we think about my life since March, is I I, say, I don't find I'm an anxious person. I, I would say I'm not an anxious person, but I have felt anxious this year a number of times. Mm. And it was we kind of we stopped going to supermarkets quite early on. Early in March, we stopped going. We did click and collect. And that was fine. And then we were running out of some stuff. And I went, right, I'm going to buy in bulk. So I don't have to do this again. I'm going to go. So I'm going to Costco. I went to Costco and I had my face mask on. And I had to queue outside and the trolleys were wiped down. And I went into Costco and it was more or less, it felt like it was deserted because they would only allow a certain number of people behind. And I suddenly got a huge sense of anxiety of how weird this felt. And looking at other people who were just looking at you and it all just felt really weird and mm -hmm. i literally sort of went is this what it's going to be like 
and it, it started to realize and and then we went on holiday so now jump forward to july so we're going on holiday we haven't been to a restaurant since beginning of march we're now coming up to the end of july mm. and we're going on holiday and we're going we're going to eat out it's like do we want to what's that going to feel like oh so we actually went out for a test meal <laughs> we actually went out on a sunday lunch it was a nice sunday so we knew we could sit outside so we could go out for lunch just me wife and the kids and just sort of just go how is this feeling and if you said to someone we went out to see how it felt going to a restaurant a year ago they'd look at you if you were bonkers but then even um two weeks ago went out for an experience with a friend and that ended and all outdoors which oh, should we go get some lunch oh there's a pub nearby let's go to that and he said to me this is the first pub i've been to since march mm. and you could see he was anxious to just We've stopped doing things in adults. We've got all this experience, all this gained knowledge and experience we've had through our entire life. Yet we're doing something we've done every day until March or February. And suddenly it feels really daunting and you're unsure. Getting your car again and typing in a sat-nav address. This is feeling really odd. I've not typed in a postcode in my sat-nav for months. And it just feels odd and weird. But we've got all experiences to say, oh, this is quite novel that I felt weird yeah I've done it so many times and you can you can put that in a box okay it's, it's, it's novelty thing I'm not really that anxious it's just it's the first time and I've not done it for ages but those children haven't got again it's going back to those life experiences those children don't have that they might be at primary school for a year they might have only been at primary school for six months and it all changed and now they're back mm -hmm. and it's all very different to how it was before yeah so, yeah all right well, one little boy, I, I, I was talking to this head teacher about who was in um, year two and, of course, hasn't been in for the six months, comes back into year three. It's very different and it's a different teacher. And he's really, really anxious. He's crying all the time. He's wet in the bed at night. It's a really, really tricky situation for them at home as well. But when she actually talked to him and she got him out to do some sand play, it came out that actually he just missed his year two teacher and he wanted to go back to year two and he missed the way it was. And now they're sitting in rows, the teacher's in the front, and it feels absolutely weird. And he's not ready for that. And we forget no. this, you know. He's still in year two, really, emotionally and, you know, temperamentally and in terms of the curriculum that he can access. And yet he's had to make this quick jump. And school isn't like school as it was before. So he's doing something totally new. So I think, you know, we've, we've got to hold that in our heads, really, that, you know, the anxiety is not going to go away for a considerable amount of time now. We've got to do everything we can to support them. And I think we've got to think about, for those younger children, even up to year two, you've got to think of the difference between that winter-born and that summer, the autumn and the summer-born. Yeah. That, that child could be that summer-born, so they have the least experience, least of the, and they're not coping. So you might find there is a sort of link to that summer-born, those July and August, that they are not emotionally ready for these changes. Yeah. Whereas somebody who's much older is more confident, they're coping with this really. There's lots of things, and literally there isn't a um, a tick sheet. Oh, summer born tick does this at home. Tick husband, um, dad's been furloughed. Tick. Oh, cool. Anxiety score thirty four. Cool. We'll support them. It's not going to be that sort of thing. It's going to be so random mm. because it could be where things. It's just where things have changed. I think is a thing. So yeah. if, if home life has stayed at home and it's been exactly the same, then that's been consistent and then might be less anxious. But where things have changed at home, 
yeah that's where you might have that more anxiety mm. because you, those children need somewhere stable yeah oh absolutely absolutely and I, I think as well i've recently spoke to someone whose kids got autism spectrum disorder and the anxiety levels there have gone absolutely through the roof because of course when they were off school they actually had quite a nice time they felt quite relaxed. They did all the work and they loved it because they weren't having to do the social engagement that they find so difficult on a daily basis. They didn't have to cope with some of the bullying that usually goes on, the nasty comments. The, you know, So they, they didn't have to kind of go through feeling sort of hyper aroused all day long. They could relax. They could engage in some of the activities that other children would have found funny or bullied them for at home they got all their work done they were thriving and in a way that's made me reflect on well do you know what what is really education about here and how how really healthy is that to expect someone on a daily basis to have to manage it's no wonder they have meltdowns when they go home in the evening if they've had to cope with all this during the day and um, now they're having to go back to school and it, again, it's it's under these kind of anxiety-provoking sort of circumstances in the pandemic. But they're having to go and face all the stuff that made them anxious before. And it's compounding it, I think, for some. So that's another group that I think we don't even need a tick list to look at. We know that there's going to be issues there. So No, definitely. Yeah. I, think, I think to me, what is education? Education right now is conforming. Thinking a certain way, being in school at certain times, having lessons is... I look at it and it's still a bit Victorian. It is that whole, and it is, it's, it's, it's it there. And actually, when we look at the world and the people who are changing the world, I'm on a Senko group on Facebook, I'm on somebody actually posted uh, a load of pictures of various people and their what their SEN was or yeah, disability exactly. was. Yeah, yeah. And there's that, oh, dyspraxia, dyslexia, ASD, all, all this stuff. And you're literally looking at it going, wow. Oh, that's phenomenal. And then, so all these people change the world and yet, and they're the ones who are not conforming. Thank goodness. Yeah. And yet what we're always still trying to do is going, look, you're really not conforming. We need to make you conform. So we're going to do more stuff to make you conform. And there's a a, the behavior thing that that czar, which really wound me up about zero tolerance behavior and all that lot. And it was just like, no. Let's look, where, where does this happen, this zero tolerance these days? It happens in the army. It's that's the only sort of place where that sort of thing happens, where you have to be attention. In the workplace, everyone has their own weight, and it's much more accommodating. People don't wear suits unless they're working in London. They wear what they're comfortable in and what's suitable for their job. And We're changing the world to realize that everyone's independent and it's better to be comfortable because you actually are more productive. There's lots of changes, and yet, Schools aren't changing, and I really hope, which I've said so many times on this podcast in the last few months, that this is that wake-up call, that perhaps not every child is in a physical school, that there are lots of children. There is a whole thing of if everything is online, there's there's a whole, they're not learning social skills, and I completely get that, but you you can have a blended approach. And That's uh, that's exactly what I think, yeah. yeah. There's lots of things you can do, and it's things like when they are in school, rather than sitting there in a class full of other people who are causing distractions and slowing things down, and you want to focus and you're struggling. Yeah, let's make that bit easier. But then actually let's do stuff like, like Lego therapy, where you're actually doing stuff in groups and the activity is often just to distract you from actually having that conversation or making you worry. There's lots of things like that and actually changing what we do in that school time. Mm-hmm. 
So to me, I'm really hoping lots changes. And my nephew is somebody who is on the spectrum and who's had a really enjoyable time. Well, he's a school refuser, but something's clicked with him. So he's now close to going back to school. Uh, my other nephew is autism, has just started, and he may have ADHD, which we're still waiting on all that paperwork. He's just started at secondary school, and it was for him, it was, he enjoyed, he enjoyed it, but I think he had migraines for the first two days because he was just coping mm, with yeah. everything that's being thrown with him and processing it all. And there are lots of parents, I think especially with SEN, as those children grow up, they, their sort of SEN has more of an impact. And you might have children who coped very well in early years, and as they go through primary, they're struggling with the changes, they're struggling with how it is, and they really have those explosions at home. Life is difficult at home because they are masking all day at school and appearing to be normal and happy and lovely, and they're not coping, and they do all that. Then what's happened since March is they've never had to do that. So the parents have this lovely reprieve that their child is, is happy. They're thriving. They've had all of this. And what's, gonna, what's happened, I'm guessing a lot of people, is September came, the child gone back to school, and they won't cope again. But rather than it being a gradual increase, and they've, re- and they've not realized how bad it is, it was probably, for some parents, it's been a sledgehammer yeah. of having six months of their child being happy thriving having their child back in the day and all this lot to bang they're back at school they can't cope the explosions are happening they're masking their child's not happy and i really think it's going to help parents see that how it is isn't working and something needs to change yeah. and yeah. i hope they all shout about it and i hope that voice gets very loud mm, i agree with you totally but i do think Lots needs to change, and not just for SEN, for all children around this and deciding what is right yeah. and what is needed. There's a whole load of stuff I go into, which is a whole off topic, but actually ignoring maybe league tables and working out what is right for this country and future children and education are based on what is really needed. Ignoring everything else, just actually starting from nothing and go, what do we need for our children? What is right? What was going to help this country and all our people work well? Mm. Generally, it's not PISA score. It's none of that. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Slightly off topic. Um, Let's come back to some of these things. So we've covered lots of things, but I just want to really just have a quick, really concise section on and we've probably covered it so we might just re-go over things but just well, maybe a bullet point is what approaches and techniques can we use to support children let's just give it as nice bullet we've discussed it but let's just go okay. here's the list yeah during the summer i in the pandemic in the height of it i wrote this toolbox of well-being for hinton house which is just a 72 page little book it's small but i wanted to actually get something out there as quickly as possible that parents could use carers could use if you're a teacher whatever you, your role is and pick it up and say right these are key strategies that we can use with kids who are anxious to help them at this current point in time and going forwards so i've incorporated loads of stuff around building connections self regulation and actually effective thinking in particular and physical activity to increase that sort of endorphin factor because we, we've got to factor that in. So if I'm working with kids with anxiety, I always start off with obviously the conversations around it. I teach them about where it comes from. We look at the physiology behind it. And then we'll go into a range of different strategies that they can try out. 
And I will do things like grounding, mindfulness, best breathing, grounding, like five fingers grounding. So five things I can see, hear, smell, touch, etc. So that what they're doing is that they're learning how to manage in the moment because it's that first 60 seconds of when you start to feel the anxiety, you need to have a plan. And I always also do an anxiety hierarchy with them. So at the top of that ladder, I'll draw out the ladder. And at the top of it, I will have what is actually making them feel fearful and anxious. And then at the bottom, we'll put the least anxiety provoking element of that particular situation. And we'll step that up in very, very small steps till we get to the top. And what we're actually going to start working on is the bottom one of that ladder. So in essence, it's about making a plan to manage my anxiety, but not saying to them, you've got to use this or you must use mindfulness. We'll introduce them to all of those strategies and key tools and they can put the ones that work for them in their toolbox. I'm I use mindfulness, but I am not a particularly mindful person myself. I do get quite anxious and hyper and I've got I've I've certainly got dyspraxia, that's for sure diagnosable but I really am passionate about this it must meet the child's needs and some of our kids who have got really high levels of anxiety asking them to sit in a class next to other kids doing mindfulness is counterproductive so ASD kids in particular and kids with experience of trauma you don't ask them to sit and shut their eyes and we're all going to actually visualize my peaceful place because what they do they need to have their eyes open so that they can see what's going on around the classroom otherwise they get scared and anxious and also what it reinforces for them is that everyone else seems to be able to do this and I can't so it compounds the anxiety and it can trigger re-trigger elements of ptsd as well i'm just thinking about that mindfulness thing is i think about when i'm the most reflective when i'm sitting there thinking is generally when i'm in a really happy place so i I do times like maybe when i'm on holiday Mm. and i'm camping and the sun's going down and i'm sitting there with my wife and we'll say life's not bad and we'll sit there and reflect and we'll talk about the future and the past. And we really sit there and think about now and stuff and how we got here and okay, what we're going to do next. And we think about things. And generally, when I think about that mindfulness, it's generally somewhere where I'm already calm is what I think. And, and, but sometimes it then helps me then when I'm maybe not calm mm-hmm. to then think back to that conversation. So sorry, the, just the idea of doing it in a room with 30 other people in a classroom mm-hmm. and trying to get that same, I just can't see that working personally no well it, it doesn't it doesn't work for me it does work for some i know it does but i mean what you're talking about in essence as well is anchoring which is yeah. going back to a place or a situation or a thought or a time when you felt calm and that's another strategy that i would actually teach most of the kids i also obviously teach them to cognitively reframe and, and you know challenge negative thoughts and thinking but again it's about having that whole toolbox I can't emphasize it enough really you can't impose it's got to be what works for me and then we'll go and we'll try these things out we'll come back we'll meet together again we'll see what did work what didn't work where the exceptions were what we can tweak what we can change and it's about keeping that sort of journal but also positive psychology comes into this a lot for me because I think very often people who are anxious and kids who are anxious What they don't get is the connection between a reduction in anxiety and doing lovely things, feeling good. Okay, so they need support to do what I call activity scheduling. So we'll do that. We'll make a plan for the week where they come in from school. They might sit and I say, you can have 10 minutes worry time. You sit there and worry all you like. People say, well, you don't say that, do you? I say, well, actually, it does work for a lot of kids. And then we'll sometimes we'll write all those worries down. 
and then we'll put them together and we'll shelve them, okay? So you say it and shelve it and we'll, we'll keep them for later when we're going to talk through and problem solve. But then after that, you go out, you walk your dog, you play football, you go on your computer and play your games. You do all the stuff that actually makes you feel good and happy and relaxed and no stress. And I think as adults, we forget kids who are anxious aren't very good at timetabling in pleasurable activities. And that is part of positive psychology. And we do it. We, we go to the pub now sometimes we actually have a drink with friends we, we timetable in a bit of creative work whatever it is so we need to train them to actually do that for themselves and keep to that diary that schedule and recognize that you know having those lovely moments of flow when you're doing something creative or you're just feeling happy for a few minutes really does make a difference on a daily basis I think as well one of the big routines I get into with all of the children is that last thing at night is when we get the worry head on. And adults, we do it as well. So the last thing I do is say, right, come on, three good things about today. Let's talk about those right now. Let's put the soothing music on. Let's change the lighting in here. Let's ban that mobile phone for at least 30 minutes before bed, including adults, because they're the worst doing this. And actually reflect on, you know, what's been good or th three things I'm grateful for today. Three things that I really enjoyed about, you know, today. I'm very positive. But I mean, they're simple strategies but put together in the right way, that plan to manage my anxiety can really help me effectively manage it. But we need to plan for it. So a range of different resources, but obviously making it bespoke to the individual kid is what really, really matters here, I think. And you can, with though that, that going to bed thing and the three things, you can actually get books. I've seen them on Amazon. My friend's got one. And it's that what three things went well today. But he also, I think, it had what are you worrying about tomorrow? So partly that's it's out your head and you've written it down. But yeah. the other part is you then look back at that the next evening. Yeah, of course you do. Yeah. You look and go, oh, I actually went really well, actually. I was worried about it, but it went really well. And it's, it's turning that, okay, so I was worried about it, but it was positive. And so he did that. And I don't think he did it for very long, but it helped him sort of start seeing the positives and changing how he dealt with things. And the other thing which we've touched on, and you touched on it again there, is that physical exercise. That is huge part and if someone isn't doing any exercise you've got to make sure they are doing their exercise it's really really important for very very many different reasons but it does have a big impact on that anxiety because yeah. to me whenever i go for a walk i'm either listening to music or i'm going for a walk and i get time to process i daydream and if i'm worrying about something i have gone for an hour long walk and i've come back still worrying about it but actually what I've done is I've gone through at different stages. I've thought about it more and kind of come up with a plan on yeah. how to then deal with it. So I've got my worry, but I've now got an hour of going, right, now I'm back. This is what I'm going to do. And that way it should be, it won't be as bad as I think it was going to be, or it's going to be better. Or by doing this, I've prepared for it as best I can. Yeah, yeah. It's walking out your worries, really. Yeah. I say to kids, you've got to go and do walk out your worries. And then also writing down, you know, very importantly, I've got post-it notes out. I write down what I'm actually worried about, this, 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 and this, and this. And then I go back over that with the kid and say, actually, let's think about the evidence for and against that. But let's make a plan for each of those eventualities. What if this happens? What if that happens? What if this happens? You can't plan for absolutely everything. But it's what we said earlier. The more you feel in control, the less anxious you'll be. So I can plan for most things. And if something really random happens, well, okay, it happens. It's not the end of the world. It's not life or death, but I can actually make my plan. So, you know, and ultimately in this context that we're finding ourselves in at the moment, it really is more important than ever that we're 
feeling that we're in control. So that planning for anxiety, the planning for the situation I'm worried about is essential. So I'm trying to work out now, do I have anxiety or do I not? Because basically what I spend my whole life doing is planning. I have a plan A, a plan B and plan C for things. So the fact I'm planning means I don't have anxiety, but do I plan because I have anxiety? That's a vicious circle really, isn't it? <laughs> yes. But we're moving house at the moment and I'm literally, I'm planning out rooms, I'm doing all this. And I go, well, I want to do this, but if that doesn't work, if the sofa doesn't fit, what am I going to do? And I literally, so I'll be able to walk in and if plan A doesn't work, I've already got plan B in. And it's just how I live. It's just how I live. But by having that, it completely reduces my anxiety. I'm not anxious because well, I can go into the situation. It. You're managing, managing it. it. Yeah. Your way of managing it is to plan. So is mine. Yes. And it's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. My to-do list is always on the go and it's always been swiveled through. But I have to, and sometimes if I wake up in the night, I will write down things that I've just thought oh, I've got, because then I can go straight back to sleep. If I don't write them down, it's the physical act of actually writing it down for me that makes a uh, difference and works. I, then, I, struggle, I struggle going to sleep if I haven't solved the problem. Right, yeah, yeah. If if I'm going, oh, what's how, how I need I need I, I've got to find a way of doing this, and if I don't find a way, or even if it's just the first step on the plan, mm -hmm. so I'll often I'll get my iPad out and I'll research, I'll find a tool, and I'll go, cool, I've got that. So hopefully that'll do that. And then the fact I've got part of an answer, I can now drift off to sleep. But if I haven't got a bit of an answer, mm -hmm. I'm worrying about it and thinking about it and trying to find the answer. And it could be two hours later. So yeah. I do find yeah being able to. Whatever's worrying me in my head, finding some sort of answer, right. maybe writing it down or putting a plan of, I need to do this first thing tomorrow morning. Even that is an answer. Of course it it's is. saying, yeah. okay, I've, I've blocked out my calendar. I've got two hours to work at how I'm going to fix this problem first thing in the morning. Cool. Yeah. And then I can let it go and I can drift off, hopefully. Yeah. You're back in control again, you see. And that's exactly the same for the kid. That's why that last night, that last minute conversation with your mum or dad or carer at the end of the evening before you go off to sleep is what really is so, so important. And I mean, for little ones, it will be part of a bedside, you know, story routine. But for older kids, there's got to be that conversation so that, you know, at this time in particular, when we're all experiencing more anxiety, you know, you're given the best possible chance of managing it as effectively as they can. Definitely. So um, we've covered a lot in this podcast. We've gone a bit around other houses. We've covered lots of things. So uh, I'm looking at my notes and we've covered nearly everything. If it's not covered in here, Tina's given me a very long list of uh, resources. <laughs> All seem to have Tina Ray next to them. Fancy that. So there's lots of other stuff you can do. So if you listen to that, the Toolbox of Wellbeing is from Hinton House Publishers. Um, there'll be a link to that and link to all the other stuff. I should be able to find those. So that will all be in the useful links for you to find. But it is, I think it comes back to very being less judgmental, being open, being listening, and not just going, well, if everyone else can do it, you can do it, stop being silly. All of that, that's what you've got to change, is just sit there and going, well, if everyone else can do it and you can't, why? That's, that's, what, all, that's what you need to change, is just change that to, or you're being silly to, well, why? It's not you being silly, because it's a very, that person, it's a very real feeling, it's a very big barrier, you might be able to see it, but you've not lived their life. You've not lived their experiences. You've got very, so you might, you just got to see the world from their angle and listen to it. And you might sit there and go, you're being silly. Or you might sit there and go, okay, that's, that's, that's quite, uh, okay, I get that. I now see why you'll be. Even if you don't, it's still not saying, it's just from your experiences that are not an issue. So me as a planner, just do this, 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 this. It's really easy, but not everyone's like that. Everyone's different. And you just got to accept that people are different. and then maybe take those steps of that anxiety ladder. It's like, don't go straight to the top. Maybe take that, help them take that first step. 
Yeah, I mean, I, I, I always say to people, it's all about being curious, not furious, which sounds cheesy, but it is. I'm curious why you feel like that. I want to know more about this. Can you tell me about it? Rather than judgmental, you know, yeah. or dismissive. And then we can plan. We can plan and we can plan those first steps. And I don't tend to talk so much about goals anymore. My goal is to be able to be in school full time. You know, I, I talk about steps because that's, you know, when you're anxious, that's what you need. You need to know the next steps. And we mustn't, whatever we do, judge our kids now. We've, what we've got to be doing is support them in the right nurturing way. We, we've got to be curious, not furious, and, and help them to work out what they can do to manage their anxiety. Because we're managing ours, most of us. We're not always doing it very well, but we're managing it mostly on a daily basis. So let's help them do it. Let's be the models, role models for them. And it's also that curious and furious, quite like that. And it's also looking at the adults. So why is that? So rather than going, oh, look, we're all doing this, just get on with it, is they might not be. Also, maybe with your senior leader, rather than being furious with what they're throwing at you, maybe just take that step back and go, is that how he's dealing with all the pressure from above? Absolutely. Because it's just, I would not want to be a teacher or a leader in a school or someone involved in that at all in any way. I'm glad I'm not a governor at the moment because there's a lot to process and deal with and big responsibility and really hard decisions with not a huge amount of support from above. So you are very much on your own in this lovely autonomous school system. And it's really not always hard to keep it in and you might say things or in the pressure it might not come out the right way and then somebody's response to that is their anxiety it's their response it's not them responding it's their anxiety so there's a whole it can get really messy just just between adults in this situation so it's it's when someone's doing something rather than saying oh wrong it's maybe find out why and perhaps in the middle of it they're not thinking clearly perhaps they haven't seen doing it a different way Perhaps the pressures from above is just meaning that's all they can do because that's all they can cope with because if they do that, that reduces the pressure. There's just so many things which making people do lots of things they might not normally do. And there's lots of random things I've seen on Twitter from schools, which is really quite bonkers. And generally, you can probably sit there and go, that person's probably very anxious or trying to cope. And that's like the last straw type thing. Mm. So they, in, any, in a normal situation, they would never have reacted like that. But this, on top of everything else, yeah. they might have just snapped a bit. And again, it's that. They didn't mean it. They're struggling. They're not happy. Mm. Everything. So we just got to make sure we are a bit more relaxed with everything and a bit more accommodating with everyone. A bit more compassionate, you know, because teachers at the moment are going through more stress than they've ever had to experience, ever, ever, ever due to this pandemic, plus all the other stresses on them. And I think in order to support them, they need just as much therapeutic input and access to appropriate supervision. And that has not been flagged up in the right way. Who is actually nurturing those people who are nurturing our kids at the moment? And I think if you're one of them, then you really need to actually look to yourself and think, what do I need? And actually start shouting about this, because there's going to be a lot of teachers with mental health difficulties, I think, in the future. If their resilience is not nurtured and supported and if their well-being is not looked after effectively. Yeah, definitely. Wow, that's a lot. Everything we've mentioned going in the show notes, including lots of Tina's books uh, or resources she's made. I'll also be sharing Tina Ray's contact information and you'll find all the show notes on our website, www.thesendcast.com. 
Big thank you for listening to the show. If you haven't subscribed already, you can subscribe by going to our website, www.thesendcast.com, where you can also sign up to our newsletter to keep up to date with all the latest news. Alternatively, you can follow us on Twitter at The Sendcast, on Facebook, The Sendcast, on Instagram, The Sendcast, on LinkedIn, just search for Sendcast. And if you want to get in touch, let me know your thoughts, suggest topics or anything else, please send an email to hello at thesendcast.com. And if you've enjoyed the Sendcast, why not look into the virtual Send conference? As I mentioned at the beginning of the episode, this is a conference that, like the Sendcast, is run by B Squared. It covers all aspects of special education needs and disability. But what makes this conference different is that it is accessed across the internet, so it's very COVID-friendly. You do not need to go anywhere. The conference runs twice a year in March and November, and each conference has 12 highly valuable sessions designed to help you with each session giving something you can take away and implement in your school. You can buy tickets for future or past events. The videos are always available and the cost for each conference is £60 and this covers the entire school, not one person. The whole school benefits. And as a listener to the Sendcast, we're offering you a 10% discount just by using the code SENDCAST10, no spaces. For more information, go to www.virtualsendconference.com and if you're a parent, we've also launched Parent Talks, which is a similar approach, but designed for parents. And the cost for Parent Talks is £10 per family for all 12 sessions, with an introduction from David and Carrie Grant. For more information on Parent Talks, go to www.virtualsendconference.com forward slash Parent Talks. So I haven't thanked you, Tina. So a big thank you for today. Thank you. Really enjoyed it. Yeah, I always I love anxiety. I love the whole conversation. And it's one of those conversations that I've had a lot over the last few months, realizing the importance and sit there going, it's one of the things you sit there going, how big this is, how important it is. And you look out in the rest of the world and you're going, there's not much out there on this. It's, it's, it's still a bit lacking. And um, hopefully that will change. But thank you for today. Really enjoyed it. And it was always great hearing different perspectives and different way it's said. I've really, really enjoyed it. And lots of new bits in there as well. So thank you for listening. We'll be back next week with another episode of the Sendcast. Goodbye from me. Goodbye from me. Bye. Bye.